Do people who want power need a crisis as a pretext to intervene? Once it starts legislating, it will have to keep on legislating. If you're going to defend free speech, you are invariably going to be defending the worst people in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Conservatives could rediscover their tradition of, of being a party of liberty? Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I'm Douglas Carswell and today we're going to be talking about the nanny state. This is the idea that government and officials and politicians know what's best for you. They know what sort of food you should eat to save you from yourself. They know what sort of drinking straws you should use in order to try to save the planet. And they think they know how to save our environment and our cities by getting us to drive the right sort of car. Joining us to talk about this is Christopher Snowden. Um, Christopher, welcome. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Christopher, you are a lifestyle economist. Explain a little bit about... The Institute of Economic Affairs, where I've been working for the last seven or eight years, uh, decided uh, to, to... We needed to kind of... Uh, there was a gap in the market, really, for a think tank to be looking systematically at these kind of issues of vaping, smoking, drinking, gambling, sugar, fat, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it may be, that are usually presented as being public health issues, but actually mm -hmm. there's economic issues like anything else, mm -hmm. and they're not normally looked at. Uh, with the usual kind of cost-benefit analysis and the normal mainstream economic thinking that, that, that you would normally address an area of public policy. So you're trying to bring some hard economic facts to say to public policymakers, hang on a second, we don't always need higher taxes and more regulation. Rational economic thinking, first and foremost, yeah. and then, yes, the economic facts, and also actually the facts about the policies themselves. Do they actually work, yeah. even if you believe that paternalism is what the government should be getting involved with? But it's, it's you and your small unit against hundreds of thousands of officials and civil servants. Do you sometimes feel it's, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to stem this huge tide? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, very much an uphill battle. I was really interested before this program. I, I looked at some data and it showed very clearly that actually the amount of sugar that we eat per person in this country has fallen pretty steadily since the 70s. The amount that we smoke has fallen pretty steadily since actually the 1950s and 60s. And um, all sorts of other indicators. Alcohol consumption Alcohol down consumption. Last 15 years. Alone. Alcohol consumption amongst 20-year-olds is, I, I would say, it's at fallen alarming levels. I don't know quite what they do with themselves on a Friday night. But on a serious point, um, why are we being told that there are all these problems that require state intervention if actually many of these problems are self-solving? Um, because you need to have a climate of fear and alarm in order to push through fairly draconian and unprecedented measures. So you, everything has to be an epidemic, everything has to be a time bomb, everything has to be a crisis. Do people who want power need a crisis as a pretext to intervene? They need to say, this problem can't solve itself, only our blueprint can solve the problem, therefore let's big up the problem and we'll get more power. Yeah, it's a pretty traditional, tried and tested way of people <laughs> get, getting more power for themselves that you can see over, over the centuries. Whereas a proper liberal will say, actually, you know what? The world is a self-organizing system. It improves naturally without um, a blueprint. And, um, you know, they tend to not need some big official and some big state to, to, to intervene. Well, also, you don't need to have the government deciding what's better and what's worse. I mean, would it be would things be getting worse if per capita consumption was going up? It's not obvious to me that that it would be. 
uh, would, would life be getting worse if there were more fat people? Not sure necessarily that, that follows. It was the same with sugar, same indeed with smoking and nicotine use. Um, so I think the, the point a liberal would make is not for the government to have these grand plans in the first place, whether they're self-solving or not. The liberal looks at it and says, this person is fat, let's say. Uh, what are the choices that they've made that's got them in that state? Are they unhappy being fat or actually is it not an issue for them? Would they really rather be doing you know, a five-mile fun run every day and only eating salads? Mm. Or actually, are they happy not bothering exercising and they take being fat and the potential health risks associated with that um, as part of the trade-off? One of my favorite figures from history was someone called Thomas Rainborough. He, was, um, he took part in the so-called Putney debates um, um, quite a long time ago. And he coined that very famous phrase when he said, and I quote, um, the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he. You could almost say that actually the, the, the chubbiest, fattest, most junk food uh, addicted he or she has a life to lead as much as the healthiest, muesli munching, gym fanatic. And it, frankly, it's none of our business as to what people eat and do in their spare time. Yeah, I think that's broadly correct, um, unless there's evidence of a market failure. So if it could be shown that people were stuffing their faces with cream cakes in the belief that there were only 10 calories per cream cake, and actually it was running that's dangerous, then that would be a market failure, and possibly in an admittedly fairly extreme hypothetical example yeah. like that. You could, you could have the government intervening and trying to educate people. But I don't see much of a market failure. Give me an example of a market failure where there, there ought to be government intervention. I would say uh, smoking in 1950 or 1955. Is this when people genuinely believed because they'd been told that it was healthy? Not necessarily healthy. I'm not sure how many people believed that, but they didn't believe it caused cancer. Right? And 1950, the first study showing it, it did came out and gradually over time, more and more studies confirmed that. But very many people either weren't even aware of the studies or they didn't believe them. So in that instance, I think uh, because there was a big information asymmetry. You know, the mm -hmm. industry knew it caused cancer, or they heavily suspected it caused cancer, and a lot of scientists understood that it caused cancer. By 1960, you'd have 10 years of studies coming out showing a link between smoking and cancer, but a very large number of people either weren't aware of those studies or didn't believe those studies. Uh, the tobacco industry was kind of disputing that evidence, and lots of smokers just didn't want to believe it. They thought they'd you know, wait and see, or maybe the government would come up with some technical solution or whatever. But there was, uh, there was an informa information asymmetry there between the general public mm -hmm. and, um, and both the tobacco industry and government scientists. In that instance, I think the government was quite right to, for example, insist on um, uh, the, the labels, warning labels on mm -hmm. cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it should have gone much further in terms of syntaxes and so on, I don't know. But I think there was certainly mm -hmm. justification for educating people about the risks of smoking. But then letting them make an informed choice. Yeah, I think letting them make an informed choice. You could make a, a case for putting a Pigovian tax on cigarettes mm -hmm. if it could be shown that there were negative externalities in terms mm -hmm. of non-smokers having to pay for smokers' health care, although mm -hmm. actually the evidence mm -hmm. of that is not at all strong. Uh, but that's the kind of thing you're looking at. You know, you look at these things, you, know, you try and look at these things rationally, but based mm -hmm. on the principle mm -hmm. that the government does not know better than the individual. What's interesting is that often the case... It, uh, what I find interesting is that the government has sometimes actually got things wrong. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, the government decided that actually 
driving diesel cars was better for us and better for the environment. And they actively encouraged the consumers and the producers to switch to diesel. There was a big concerted effort right across Europe to make the move to diesel. We now know that actually diesel has got some pretty nasty particulates in it. And actually diesel, the switch to diesel has led to the deaths of tens of thousands of, if not hundreds of thousands of people across Europe. Is there not a danger that if you give officials huge powers to decide what's best, they'll often actually get it wrong because you know, we, we, by definition, don't always know what's best? Yeah, and that's a flip side to the argument that's often made, which effectively says you can't give individuals freedom because they might make the wrong choices. You know, that's mm -hmm. what Squealer says in Animal Farm. <laughs> uh, you know, Napoleon would only be too happy to, to let you choose for yourself, but sometimes you might make the wrong choices, citizen. Then where should you be? Um, obviously, people do get it wrong. Individuals do get it wrong. If, insofar as you can objectively measure these things, mm -hmm. uh, you can say people make mistakes. They would look back on things they've done in their lives and, and say, I, I think I got that wrong. The trouble is, if the government gets it wrong, then everybody suffers. Yes. If the individual gets it wrong, then it's it's on them. If the government gets it wrong, they can cause an enormous amount of damage. Diesel cars is, is, is one very good example. But the various countries around the world that have banned e-cigarettes, mm -hmm. or as in America at the moment, really clamping down on e-cigarettes, I think that will be seen in, in time to be a sort of historic mistake. Even fairly small things like uh, there's a few countries where they force cyclists to wear cycle helmets. The evidence actually shows that it makes cyclists more exposed being hit by cars, uh, and it prevents people cycling, which actually is, mm -hmm. is bad for their health. Mm -hmm. So yeah, governments get it wrong all the time, and that's one of the big reasons, of course, liberals are very skeptical about government power. I think that people who tend to be interventionist, I noticed this in politics when I was an MP, people who tend to favour intervention tend to be naturally more pessimistic. Uh, uh, do you think that they're, because they're killjoys, they they have this sort of slightly puritanical streak? Or do you think do you think that they need to justify the intervention by claiming that actually things are getting worse and only only the state can improve things? I wouldn't quite divide politicians up between liberals and killjoys. You know, uh, I don't think there's actually that many of them who are kind of systematically going through everybody's pleasures and trying to take them away one by one. They're not necessarily... It sometimes feels a bit like that. It feels like it, but you will meet quite a lot of people... Uh, both in public health, actually, uh, as well as in Parliament, who have got a real bee in their bonnet about gambling, let's say, mm -hmm. or alcohol or smoking, but are pretty laid back about something else. So you've got you've got people who are fanatically anti-smoking, but actually pretty <laughs> laid back about alcohol. So people have different reasons for but being against these I, things. I would sometimes listen to MPs with a bee in their bonnet, as you put it, about gambling, for example. And I would wonder if, when they first became politically active they had to be in their bonnet about gambling. Or is it the case that having got the two letters MP after their name and become a member of parliament, they're fishing around for something to empower themselves with and finding, picking up a problem, exaggerating the extent of the problem, kind of makes them feel important, puts them centre stage. Uh, I think some of them go to parliament with that being their bonnet, for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think some of them get taken in by the various special interest groups. Mm -hmm. And you can see that with the whole anti-fixed odds betting terminal issue, mm -hmm. which was you know, a fantastically well-orchestrated moral panic by a very small number of people. Yeah. But they managed to suck in most MPs in the end, but it suck in quite a few of them who were absolutely convinced that this stuff was leading the country to perdition. We, we have these habitual sort of moral panics. I remember in the 1980s when 
VHS videos were all the rage. There were Tory MPs giving lectures about the, the threats of video nasties mm. that were sort of contaminating young minds. Today, the, the, the gaming industry faces these constant attempts to try to regulate it. Apparently, young teenage boys playing too much, I don't know, I, I can't even remember the name of some of these games. It, it, it's, it, it will lead to violence, apparently. There's, there's absolutely no evidence for this at all. Um, we, we, we see these moral outrages, and it sometimes strikes me that you know, some people just can't cope with the fact that other people somewhere are enjoying themselves, whether it's by playing too many video games, watching horror movies on VHS, or eating too many cream cupcakes. Yeah, I think some people are probably a bit highly strung. I think mm. if you wanted to be charitable, you could say that you do need to be vigilant as, as new things come along. It's, you know, it's not as if everything in the garden is rosy. You do get things that become genuine problems, and you need, mm -hmm. to, need to spot them. Um, and that's why there's generally a fear of the new, you know, whether it's e-cigarettes mm -hmm. or fixed odds bedding terminals or, uh, you know, 5G now. You know, recently they had a debate in Parliament about multiple, not sorry, not, uh, electrosensitivity. No scientific basis for it. What whatsoever. is electrosensitivity? It's these people who think that they're allergic to Wi-Fi and, uh, and uh, electric, uh, you know, electric magnetic forces. It's utter quackery, but they devoted about an hour to it in Parliament because this 5G is coming along and saying, well, maybe the 5G is different. We accept actually it was a scare with the 3G, but the 5G is much more powerful. It reminds me, when, when primitive tribesmen were first shown hurricane lamps by early European explorers in, in Africa, apparently they were terrified that the hurricane lamps contained some sort of spirit being inside them. Mm. When, when cameras were first shown to primitive tribespeople, um, apparently there was this great fear that the, the, the image would capture their spirit. It's almost as if some of these moral panics about the new and the need to regulate them are, are based on the sort of primitive fear of novelty. Fear of technology, perhaps. You know, when the, when the steam locomotive came along, people were convinced that if you went faster than 20 miles an hour, you would just die. To be fair, the first foreign secretary, I think, should have God. been more scared of the... The first, the first railway fatality was the then was foreign William secretary. William Hutchison. Hutchison, yes. Name was yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Who, who, wasn't, who wasn't fearful of this newfangled technology at all. So well, there you go. You see, maybe apparently he stood in the way of it and the train came off slightly better than he did. Yeah, well, evidence <laughs> of regulation. The need for regulation straight away. Um... Now, a few years ago, there was a book written called The Spirit Level, and it was written by a couple of, I think, fair to say, left-leaning academics. And it became, if you like, a, a contemporary pretext for the, the modern left. I, actually, I hesitate to use the word left because there are people on the centre-right who are just as guilty of this. It, it seemed to provide a pretext for those wanting to intervene. You've more recently written a, a sort of rebuttal to that, the, the spirit level delusion. Could you talk me through what is, what is the problem with the analysis in the spirit level? How has it empowered those who want to intervene? And, and why is it a delusion? Uh, well, it wasn't that recently, actually. It was 2010 I wrote the book. Uh, spirit Level came out uh, 2009, so 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it, at the time, like, you know, for a little while, it became kind of a bit of a, a Bible. The mm -hmm. people on the left, and then Piketty came along with his book, and it took over, and then something mm -hmm. you know, something comes along every every couple of years, um, and he's taken very seriously and more or less forgotten about. And I rarely talk about the spirit level these days because nobody seems to even know what it is most of the time. Um, but yeah, it was very influential, and I was interested in it just because um, 
it was sort of epidemiology, or it portrayed itself as being epidemiology. I'm very interested in epidemiology. This is the spread uh, of diseases. The spread of diseases, effectively, and they try and transfer that to the whole of society. So I think they call themselves social epidemiologists. And I was just amazed at how crude the methods in the book were. All they do is they get aggregate data. So, for example, they get life expectancies from around the rich world, and they'll plot them on a graph against income inequality, and they'll look for a pattern. And if it goes up or down, they'll say... They'll find a crude correlation. Very crude, um, simple, you know, no, no adjustments or anything like that. But just, is there a crude correlation? Which is, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It can point you in the right direction sometimes. Um, but the correlations were really weak. I noticed... But even were, if you can establish a correlation, that doesn't prove causation. No, of course it doesn't. No, no, but that's, that's inevitable. And that is always mm. the case uh, with epidemiology. So even, that would even mm. be true of smoking and lung mm. cancer, yeah. Uh, you have to use your judgment, really, about whether you think there's uh, there's causation there. The basic argument was that societies that are more equal are more successful. Yeah. But they didn't look at the possibility that actually successful societies may be more equal. They, 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 they presumed that it was the apparent inequality that was the cause of the uh, relative failure. Yes, they did. And they made some very specific predictions, actually, about what would happen in the UK if we reduced levels of inequality down to that of Sweden. And life expectancy would go up by two years and there'd be half as many murders and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it was pitched to people, and I think the reason it was popular, is it, it seemed to confirm a lot of people's intuition on the left that inequality is a bad thing. A lot of people on the left just dislike inequality, basically, because they think it's, it's unfair. It played to pre-existing... Very prejudices. Much so. Yeah, very much so. And they then said, well, this is basically scientific socialism, right? This is back to Marx. We've got the mm -hmm. evidence now. It's not just a feeling we have that society is better if it's more equal, but we have mm -hmm. actual evidence mm -hmm. here that if we reduce inequality, we'll see greater recycling rates and lower rates of infant mortality and so mm -hmm. many things. I mean, there wasn't anything really they didn't find was related to inequality. I mean, the, the, the great irony is that actually since the late 1980s, inequality in this country has fallen. And since the 2007 financial crisis, inequality has fallen actually really quite significantly. Um, and certainly global inequality has mm. fallen very dramatically in the past 20 years. So, I mean, if your great raison, raison d'etre for intervention is tackling inequality, you're, 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 you're going to have to find another hobby horse. You're, you're, you're flogging a, a, a lost cause. Well, they would say that although it has gone down a bit, it's still higher than it is in somewhere like Slovenia. Or actually, I wouldn't mention Slovenia because it was one of the countries they left out of the analysis. They, that was one of the problems is there's a lot of cherry picking when it came to the countries. Uh, but Sweden or, or uh, Norway. Uh, actually, if you look at rates of inequality, insofar as you should care about it, I'm not sure really should do really it's just an indicator my, well my belief is it can indicate if something's going wrong it is not in itself mm -hmm. a cause of things going wrong and it's not in itself something to worry about but if you look at globally actually uk isn't that high and china over the past 30 years has seen this dramatic yeah. if you look at a graph of absolute poverty there's been this dramatic fall in poverty in china yet at the same time the number of mega rich multi-billionaires has skyrocketed. And inequality has gone up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Dramatic increase in inequality. But I think for almost everyone, life in China today is vastly better than it was 30 years ago. And, and yet, if inequality is your thing, if you're measuring social success on the basis of inequality, you would have to conclude that China was a, a less successful place, whereas actually, on the contrary, all the evidence shows that it's vastly better today than it's ever been.
Indeed. And by the same token, you'd have to say that life has got much better in Britain since the financial crash. You know, and there are fewer murders now because there's less inequality. And it's not, I actually re, uh, I went back and looked at this again only a few months ago because I thought this should now stand up 10 mm. years on. If you mm. use the same basic data sets but different data points because you've mm -hmm. moved on 10 years, the whole theory should still stand up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't at all. Not, not a single graph I looked at has any association, even if you only look at their cherry-picked 23 countries. Yeah. So it doesn't stand up a bit of science, which is what I was really interested in. Um, and I, I, I never particularly cared about inequality when I read the book. I read it because I was interested in the epidemiological side of it. And I, I haven't started caring much more about inequality <laughs> since. Really. I just don't think it's important. I agree with you. It's material well-being and incomes mm -hmm. that matter. Mm -hmm. The idea that, which is implicit in the spirit level, that things would get better if everybody got poor, as long as the rich got poorer faster, I think is an insane way of looking. At it. It's odd, but the entire time that I stood for Parliament, I can't really recall ever being approached by a voter in my constituency who was personally upset about social inequality. Most people, I think, tend to judge how they do relative to their friends and their neighbours, yeah. and most important of all, to themselves. Are they better off this year than they were the previous year? I, I, I simply don't recognise this idea that there's a vast mass of people on low incomes who deeply resent the fact that there's someone done good and living in a mansion, um, you know, um, elsewhere in the country. I, I just don't... I, I think the people who are obsessed about inequality are either people in public life who want to give themselves an excuse to intervene, or perhaps what you might call upper middle class people who for years grew up in this country with a slightly privileged existence, who suddenly find globalization means that actually there's, you know, yeah. there's some guy from France or Germany who can do their job at the bank better than they could, or, yeah. you know, people who spent years and years and years earning a good living as estate agents who suddenly find that actually there's an online startup company that can, can do the job without the fat fees. That, that's more or less my theory on this. I think, you're, I think you're right about normal people. Normal people do not seem to resent premiership football as wages, for example. Which on the contrary, in my experience, they admire it. Yeah, unless <laughs> the player is playing really badly, yeah. right? That's the only time they resent him uh, is when it seemed to be kind of ill-gotten gains. Yeah. So Fred the Shred, that's unfair. But another edge from that. Someone like Simon Cowell. I remember yeah. having multiple conversations with people um, in my part of the world when the X Factor was all the rage, who hugely admired the fact that this guy had had done so well. And people would sort of recount the story about how at one time he he had so little money he could barely afford a taxi fare, and now he had you know now he was he was living a rock if, star. If there's a rags to riches element, that, yeah. that's people, even even better. People admire that. They they do indeed. But uh, just in general, if it's you know Roger Federer or Wayne Rooney or somebody, there's no problem with that. If it's some bank you don't really understand what they they do and they seem to be earning a lot of money, you might feel a little bit resentful. But nowhere near as resentful as the people in the kind of natural aristocracy in London, right? And yeah. this is uh, my theory. The journalist class is very yeah very similar to yours. You've got people who went very often to public school and they see the people they went to school with going off and becoming head fund managers, um, making a huge amount of uh, money. And those people just assumed that they were always going to be at the top, or at least that the difference between them and the rich was never going to be enormous. 
And I think it's because they feel closer to that, that, that class of people, that they go to dinner parties and see these people who are fabulously wealthy. So we're talking kind of university lecturers, people like you know, the spirit level people. Politicians. Journalists. You know, yeah, journalists. Right. You know, rich by most people's standards, certainly wealthy, yeah. but not super rich. I think a lot of this comes down to the resentment between the haves and the have-nots. The, the problem is almost really about the sense of entitlement of a, a few people who think they should be at the apex of society. It's not really about equality for the vast majority of people in the country. I, th I think so, yeah. yeah. I think that that's where a lot of the kind of the visceral resentment comes from. I think politically, however, for particularly left-wing parties, obviously, um, at the time, this is an interesting thing about the spirit level, like it was written just before the crash, but then published just after the crash. And just before the crash, if you cast your mind back, we'd had many, many years of economic growth. Incomes were going up very nicely. Um, and there wasn't much else for the left to really complain about. And so it became inequality. And Piketty, Piketty's book came along. And really, in the last 10 years, you haven't, inequality has not really been the obvious thing to yeah. complain about, right? It's stagnant <laughs> wages and, and low incomes are the things to really be complaining about. If, if you want to find a pretext to intervene and inequality is off the table simply because there isn't enough to justify it, perhaps you might shop around for, I don't know, climate change or some other, some other find some other crisis or apparent crisis that needs intervention. Um, do, do, do you think that one of the reasons why there's this increased interest in climate change is perhaps this desperation to find a, a, new, a new crisis to latch onto? Well, I think clearly on the part of some people, um, it is seen to fit in well with their desire to overturn capitalism. Mm -hmm. So this is a, quite a common thread now. Someone like George Monbiot will say that the only way to, to save the planet is to overthrow capitalism. Now, as it happens, George Monbiot has always wanted to overthrow capitalism. What a happy coincidence that this, <laughs> this crisis fits in with his lifelong goal. Yeah. Uh, same with Caroline Lucas, same, same with a lot of people. I've recently mm -hmm. reviewed a book called The People's Republic of Walmart, which makes this case that mm -hmm. you know, we, cannot we cannot possibly save the planet unless the government takes over all the fossil fuel companies and, uh, and closes mm -hmm. them down. Um, that's not to say yeah, that climate change isn't a problem, of course, mm -hmm. but it is interesting that those people have been particularly keen to seize it and try and capitalize on it. And I think actually the, the kind of right of politics have let themselves down a bit by not getting involved with that issue earlier and coming up with better market-based mm -hmm. solutions. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when the government does intervene, um, often we're told that it's good for us. The government needs to make sure that we know that the meat put into the food supply chain is, is what it says it is. Um, but often what ends up happening is that the producers enter into a sort of symbiotic relationship with the regulator so that the producers produce the food that they want to produce and find convenient to produce. And profitable. And, and profitable. And, you know, I mean, let me give you an example. When people were really poor and they got a little bit richer, bread consumption went up. When they got a little bit richer still, bread consumption started to go down because people switched to other, other, other products. Now, when people are, in relative terms, super rich, they're going back to, to bread, but not just any old bread. They're eating you know, fancy organic bread and uh, top-of-the-range bread that's sort of been handcrafted by some artisan bakery. Um, in other words, the quality of what they're eating has improved without the need for any state intervention. But 
if you have a market that's heavily regulated, that natural innovation, that natural tendency that consumers have to want better food that's more ethically produced and that's better for them and better for the environment, you almost arrest that process, surely, if you, if you, if you over-regulate. Well, I don't, I don't know about that with, with, in the case of food. Um, I mean, there are certainly a lot of regulations around food, and particularly at the EU level, mm -hmm. which are definitely designed to help the producers and mm -hmm. to keep the farmers uh, you know, in, not, not necessarily just to keep them going, but to keep them going in the manner to which they've become accustomed, which is to mm -hmm. say, without having to necessarily innovate a great deal if you're a, mm -hmm. you know, a sheep farmer in, in France or, or somewhere like that. Um, and the effect of regulation like that is to make everybody that bit poorer. So from that point of view, it holds mm -hmm. things back. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly agree that as people get richer, they will naturally adopt some of the you know, habits that you've described. Whether mm -hmm. a lot of these things actually are any better for the environment or the health is debatable. Actually, I think organic food is, a, is probably a ripoff, but if people want to buy it, that's, that's up to them. But yeah, people quite simply will become more middle class as they get more money, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a lot of the stuff I write about really is a pretty old-fashioned, almost Victorian-style middle class reform movement, mm -hmm. in which they try to make people adopt the, the habits of the middle class, which is to say these days not smoking, drinking wine, and, mm -hmm. um, and worrying a great deal about their weight and where their food comes from. Now, if you're in the habit of intervening, and deciding what's right for people to eat and what's right for people to drink and how much they should drink and all, all the rest of it. It's very easy to go one step further and start trying to regulate what it is that people see in terms of advertising and then from that what it is that, that people think. I, I can't help thinking that what starts off with well-intentioned paternalism ends up with this basic contempt of, you know, working class people is this idea you can't you can't trust the proles you can't trust them to make these choices for themselves um it's incredibly condescending do you see a link between regulating what we eat and drink right through to regulating what it is that people can discuss and see and talk about on the internet yeah if i wasn't writing about nanny state stuff i would be writing about free speech i think mm -hmm. it's it's one of the biggest uh, issues of the day. I'm really concerned about the way it's been nibbled away at, and they've nibbled away at in the same kind of incremental way as they nibbled away at smokers. Really, you know, they find an extreme case where there is some need for intervention. Exactly, hard cases making bad law. Yeah. Classic example. So, it, if you're going to defend free speech, you are invariably going to be defending the worst people in the world, mm -hmm. right? Because they're not going to go after people who are saying, "Let's all be nice to everybody and you know, sing kumbaya." They're going to be Initially, the, the anti-free speech people are going to be going after people who are saying unpleasant things about Muslims or Jews or you know, homosexuals or whatever it mm -hmm. may be. And yeah, I really do think you have to be a free speech absolutist because mm -hmm. if, the, if the precedent is that you can't say things because they're offensive or they might incite, incite hatred, not violence, but just hatred, there is no end to it. And we've, we're already seeing this. You know, I really think we should get rid of all the so-called hate, spe hate speech laws. They are being extended to different protected groups until almost everybody is a, a protected group. Um, and there is no reason to ever stop. And kind of in answer to your question, wh where does it end? It ends with prohibition for, for all the stuff I'm talking about. So the, the government now is, is talking very seriously about getting rid of tobacco, which is to say banning its sale by 2030. 
where has this come from? Who decided this? Where, what, what, what manifesto was this stuff ever in? Have you asked smokers if they're mm -hmm. happy with mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Now, I personally think it's very likely by 2030 that there'll be uh, a relative handful of smokers, because I think vaping and other new nicotine technologies will eventually make it obsolete. On the other hand, there are people I know who, at this moment in time at least, have tried all the alternatives and mm -hmm. they don't like them and they're happy smoking. But the government is, has decided that it's just going to get rid of this thing. The, the, the issue is who decides. Mm. And you've rightly pointed out that these changes in public policy just seem to, seem to happen. Um, there was a time when people like you and me who favour individual liberty say, right, okay, we have a democratic system. We, we, we will vote for parties that want to maximise individual liberty and people who think that the state should intervene can vote for other parties, usually on the centre-left, who want maximum state intervention. And, and we regulate the, the extent of government intervention that way. But it strikes me that actually the, the whole system is broken because I can't see much evidence that when they're in office, Conservative Party politicians are any less likely to intervene. In fact, I, I noticed that actually the Conservatives have been in power for you know much of the past decade, and there's been no let up in the in the degree of regulation. You know, from Michael Gove banning drinking straws to you know all, all, all kinds of things. Um, do do you think there's a danger there? Why do you think the Conservative Party's comprehensively failed to to tackle the nanny state? Um, I think that. If you look at the, the, the last decade, which is basically a Tory decade, compare yeah. that with the, the last decade of Labour government, which was considered by many to be you know, the most nanny state government ever. You actually look at what both of those governments have done. Blair liberalised the drinking laws. That was a good thing. He liberalised the gambling laws. That was a good thing. He brought in the smoking ban. That was a bad thing. Smoking ban was one of the few nanny state things he actually did. Follow that up with David Cameron alone, who brought in display ban the plain packaging legislation, uh, banning smoking in cars, wanted to bring in minimum pricing. Theresa May has brought in this clampdown on gambling machines. Uh, they're now proposing a total ban on, on tobacco by 2030. And she's brought in a obesity strategy with all kinds of basically anti-smoking policies applied to the food supply. That, so the stories are much, much worse. That's, that's interesting. So actually, you think the Conservatives' record is much worse much than Labour? Yeah. Now, that's not to say things would have been different if Labour had stayed in power for the last 10 years. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the kind of variable, right? Sure. Things are just getting worse in general. The public health lobby has much more influence over time. And I suspect if you had a Labour government over the next 10 years, it would be at least as bad as a, a Tory government would be over 10 years. So I think it's... Um, Although the Conservatives could just have said no to this stuff, could have just stonewalled these people and said, we are not mm. going to do that, we're, we're Conservatives. Uh, they were up against more pressure, I think, than even Tony Blair was under mm. from the public health lobby, which is just on a roll, not just in this country, but across Europe and across the world. Mm. The, the, all the pressures are uh, going in that direction. And what the public health lobby do is they go around the world looking for weak ministers, really, especially if they're health ministers. And it doesn't matter where they are. Once they've found one, they'll lobby them like hell, flatter them like hell, 
until they bring about the policy they want. Whether it's minimum pricing in Scotland with Nicola Sturgeon, or mm -hmm. plain packaging with Nicola Roxon down in Australia, mm -hmm. or uh, food taxes in Hungary, it doesn't matter where it is, whatever that place is will somehow become a world leader. We've got to follow Hungary's lead, we've got to follow Ireland's lead. Are really? They, when have we ever done that? You know, with the greatest respect to these countries, are, why, why these countries? The, is this lobby largely made up of academics? Are they publicly funded? What, what, has anyone tried to sort of deconstruct this public health lobby? Who are they? Well, I've written quite a, quite a lot about the public funding, of which there is a lot. Although, to be fair to the Conservatives, they have reduced it a little bit. But at the same time, they, they, they've created Public Health England, which is the mm -hmm. biggest public health lobby group of the lot. I mean, it's just absolute leviathan now. You don't even need all the kind of sock puppet pressure groups and the academics. They're all in Public England, who essentially become judge, jury and executioner. Um, they, a lot of them are academics, activist academics, uh, academics who have been activists. Uh, academics who are in fields which have nothing to do with public health. <laughs> a lot of sociologists, uh, uh, a lot of psychologists, mm -hmm. a few kind of engineers, all sorts of people. Um, but yeah, you know, 100, 150 years ago, if you wanted to bring about this kind of social change, you would be marching on Whitehall with a little placard. Uh, and now you don't need to do that. You can get paid to do that, mm -hmm. get paid quite handsomely and go around mm -hmm. the world attending conferences and producing the orbit of you know, junk science saying such and such is going to work, or we've done some computer modeling saying that you need to bring in a tax on milkshakes or whatever it may be. Do you think we're going to see a, a, a sea change? Do you think that perhaps one of the consequences of digital technology is that people have the idea of, of choice? People have self-selection. Deference is going in all sorts of ways because of it. The idea that you, know, you defer to a, a, a GP not, not, not when you can actually shop around for um, a different kind of doctor online. Um, deference to politicians is going. Do you think that actually a new rising generation is growing up who, who are just not going to be prepared to put up with some of this nanny state intervention? Or do you think that actually younger people are, are much more willing to be bossed around than previous generations? I think people, you know, the second of those, really. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's by any means impossible that there will be a backlash. It depends how fast some of these groups go, particularly in the area of food, which mm -hmm. is obviously much more sensitive to many more people than issues like um, smoking or vaping. But I am concerned, not just with young people, but people in general. I think mm -hmm. that the, the nanny state is uh, winning the, I wouldn't call it the battle of ideas and such, but they're winning mm -hmm. over public opinion. They seem to have convinced a very large number of people that obesity uh, is a ticking time bomb, that obese people are a drain on public services in just the same way as they falsely claim that about smokers. Um, and recently Cancer Research got in a bit of trouble. I don't know if you saw it. Their, their mm -hmm. obesity cigarette poster was accused uh, of being fat shaming. I'm not sure it actually was. I'm, I'm, it's certainly, it, it opened up an interesting divide, actually, mm -hmm. uh, amongst academics on that front. Um, but whether or not it's fat shaming or not, there is no doubt in my mind that being fat is increasingly being stigmatized. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't think that is a good thing. I don't think it's an effective public health strategy, for one thing. But I just, I'm against people being stigmatized in general. Mm -hmm. I was against mm -hmm. the denormalization uh, of smokers, which is mm -hmm. more or less official uh, government policy. So I am concerned that there is this growing tide of really hatred um, amongst certain groups of people. And I'm very concerned it can be whipped up so quickly. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. You know, it doesn't feel five minutes since I was on the radio talking about the, the slippery slope or whatever I was talking about, whether it was banning smoking or plain packaging for tobacco. But I would always try and make the point 
that it's smoking today and mm -hmm. it'll be alcohol and food and sugary drinks next. Mm -hmm. And it never got any traction, that argument, because it just seemed too ridiculous. Mm -hmm. and I, w I was accused of being hysterical. And here we are, and uh, you know, li literally adverts saying, obesity is a new smoking. <laughs> and you know, the word obesity on cigarette packs, let's, let's regulate food like, like tobacco. And people, are going, people aren't saying, oh, Snowden was right about that. I, would, mm -hmm. I wish he'd listened to him. Mm -hmm. People are saying, damn right, we should be treating uh, mm -hmm. food like tobacco. Sugar's addictive. Sugar is toxic. And you just go, well, this is how easy it is to pull the wool over people's eyes, isn't it? But if, just on that note, if, if calorie consumption has gone down and obesity has gone up, is simply the problem that people aren't doing enough exercise? Well, you're looking at averages there. Um, yeah, on average, calorie consumption does seem to be lower now than it was in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And... It's not quite as simple, actually, as saying, well, the only other alternative is physical activity. There are a lot of other things going on. It's, it's a really Central heating. Central heating, for one. Actually, the decline of smoking is another one. I mean, it really? does act as an appetite suppressant. Okay. Um, there are lots of different factors. There is a massive genetic element uh, to it. Um, it. It genuinely is a much, much more complex issue than something mm -hmm. like smoking. And I, I personally believe that we, we are yet to discover... Um, the full reason for why obesity seems to have gone up mm -hmm. over the years. One interesting point, which is worth mentioning, uh, I read this in Anthony Warner's book, The Truth About Fat, in which he looks at every possible scenario, and mm -hmm. every possible mm -hmm. explanation for, for obesity. He points out actually, it, to, some point, to some extent, it's simply a mathematical issue. That if you look over the last 100 years, people's body weight has just been gradually increasing. And the fact that we... Uh, define obesity as being a body mass index of over 30 means that it suddenly started rising from around about 1980. Mm -hmm. If, but that's an arbitrary figure, pretty much, right? If we had defined it as a uh, BMI of 31, it would have started going up from the 1990s and we would be blaming Nintendos or something. If it had been 29, it would have started in 1970 and we'd be blaming, you know, Mark Bowler or somebody. You know, so part of this so is a post facto. It, it's not as if you know, people were great healthy weights up until about 1980, and suddenly there was this enormous increase. It's actually, body weight has been gradually going up. Uh, so what's the explanation for that? Fairly simple, I think. Really affluence, and to some extent, this uh, decline in physical activity. At change in the labor force pattern, if fewer people are working in manual labor. jobs, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, isn't it slightly odd that the state, on the one hand, subsidizes sugar production, subsidizes, or certainly used to at an EU level, subsidized tobacco farmers, um, subsidizes the diesel industry, and, and yet at the same time tries to clamp down on the consequences of excessive sugar consumption and excessive tobacco consumption. Surely if the government really wants to do something constructive, it should just scrap all subsidies on um, industries that produce things that are bad for us. Yeah, that would seem the obvious. You know, thing to do. I can't. I can't argue with that. You know, if if, mm -hmm. if the the intention is to um, destroy the tobacco industry, it does seem odd to be subsidising part of the. Does that still go on? Does the EU still think, subsidise tobacco production over in Greece and places? I think it does, but I don't, I don't mm -hmm. hold me to that. I mean, they sure. certainly it certainly has sugar done. production in this country. It, it very much subsidised sugar beet production, yeah, yeah, while putting up walls against sugar cane production. So yeah. you, maybe you could argue that's a wash in public health terms, you know, putting the price of one form of sugar up and, yeah. and the other one down. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at the Institute of Economic Affairs. I'm not a fan of subsidies yeah, in yeah. any case. Is there light at the end of the tunnel 
when we leave the European Union. And the reason is because at the moment we have a system of regulation which is a, a natural monopoly. When we look at the food industry or, or pretty much any industry, there's, there's a single regulator often interpreting a single set of standards quite often at a, at a European level. If we leave the European Union, we could, by accident rather than design, end up with a system of competing standards. Um, the moment we leave the European Union, it would be legal to buy and sell something in this country if it came up to the EU regulatory standard. When we have a free trade agreement with America, it could be based on the idea that we can buy and sell anything in this country if it's legal to buy and sell it in the States and vice versa. Once you end up with a series of trade agreements like that, you're basically putting the onus on the UK consumer to decide what it is they want to buy, regulated by whether it's a British regulator, a European regulator, a North American regulator, an Australian regulator. Do you think that actually mutual standard recognition and this whole shakeup in international trade that's coming might actually rein in this sort of nanny state tendency? Well, it's obviously possible. Um, I tend it, it, to speak specifically about the area I, I write about. It's not looking particularly great because mm. the EU actually hasn't done very much of the stuff I complain about. Is most of it homegrown? Almost entirely, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, alcohol, no regulations on in the EU, basically. Yeah. It never gets involved, particularly every now and again, puts out a position paper saying, you know, don't drink and drive. That's about it. Food. From a public health point of view, again, very little. I mean, it doesn't do sin taxes, food taxes, soft drink taxes, for example. Mm -hmm. Tobacco, it's done a fair bit, um, but it's nearly all been copying UK legislation. So the Tobacco Products Directive that came in a couple of years ago. Is there an argument saying that actually the EU has been restraining in terms of reining in some of our busybodies? Um, up to a point. I would have said that a couple of years ago when it looked like the EU was going to strike out minimum pricing for alcohol. But in the end, they they managed to push through a fudge. They had one they, opportunity to do something that something would have made them good. genuinely popular. Yeah. But by that time, we'd voted to leave. So yeah. it was kind of, you know, that would have been the only thing I regretted about leaving. If, that might have if, prompted a rethink. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But in the end, they kind of... They effectively did a yeah. carve out for anything that was considered public act. So yeah, the, the market harmonisation didn't really count for anything mm -hmm. when it came down to it. Um, I don't know if they've been really holding the UK back, but certainly the UK has always been going ahead of them. So when they brought when the EU brought in its tobacco products directive, all the stuff in there about you know you can't have packs of ten, you can have graphic warnings on the pack, everything apart from banning menthol, which no member state has even you know considered, it was all stuff the UK did. And the UK at the same time brought in plain packaging. So it was classic gold plating by the, mm -hmm. by the UK. Mm -hmm. So the UK has been consistently more nanny state than most European countries. I edit the nanny state index. I can show this empirically. <laughs> we are, mm -hmm. I think, the fourth or fifth, fifth worst country from that point of view. Um, and actually, the, the countries of Southern Europe in particular are, are pretty good allies in this. They, they do manage to hold back even the World Health Organization um, from bringing in too much nanny state stuff, particularly in regards to food. Mm -hmm. So the Italian food industry seems to have quite a nice bit of pressure okay. on, on the government. So yeah, they're a bit more laid back than Southern Europe. We here in Northern Europe, us and the Scandinavians and the Irish are terrible with mm -hmm. this nanny state stuff. 
So the only good thing about leaving the EU from a nanny state point of view is that we'll be able to get rid of the EU regulation on vaping. Mm-hmm. They originally wanted to uh, regulate them as medical products, which would effectively mean mm-hmm. nobody could get their hands on them. Uh, fortunately, they climbed down from that, but they still brought in a load of you know petty, silly, damaging regulations, which actually put people off switching to vaping. So that can go, and also the ban on snus. I don't know if you know about snus, but it's very popular. What is snus? I'll show you because I have some on me. Guys, I've been on a train today. Uh, it's a smokeless tobacco product, which they use okay. a lot in Sweden. Um, and uh, you pop it under your lip, and they've got a smoking rate under five percent now in Sweden. It's it's so much lower than it smells any a bit other like a tea bag. country. Yeah, well, they kind of look like tea bags too. And what is it? It's just uh, it's essentially snuff. Right, nasal snuff, but it's in a pouch and it goes under your lip. And okay. the bandit. And it's got nicotine in it. Oh, yeah, got nicotine in it. Um, but it's a great substitute for smoking, and there are very few smokers in Sweden as a result. But it's, the, uh, the Swedish got a, an exemption when they joined the uh, EEC, was it? 1995? No, EU, 1995. They, uh, they demanded an opt out from the snooze ban. It had been banned in, in EU three years e- earlier. And their referendum, I don't know if you remember, but the Swiss only voted to exceed 51 to 49. The Swedish. The Swedish. Sorry, did I say Swedish? Swedish. The Swedish only voted to, to exceed 51% to 49. Yeah. So it's quite possible if they hadn't got this exemption, they might not have uh, elected yeah, to join us off. There's been this no country? call for a, a rerun, by the wasn't way, there something in this referendum, country? even though it was only 49. Uh, wasn't there something 51. in this country called school bandits? Ah, yes, you remember. Well, is this that, is how it is all started, you see, Douglas. Yeah, that's, well, essentially, yeah. School bandits was a, was a brand. It goes back to the 1980s, where Margaret Thatcher gave a grant to a factory up uh, near Glasgow, um, which was going to make Skull Bandits for U.S. Smokeless Tobacco Company. And the anti-smoking people got wind of this, and they started complaining, and they said that this appeals to kids. And to be fair, the, the, the packet had a kind of picture of a cowboy. You know? So you could just about make that case. Um, and that it, there was going to be a gateway effect to smoking. It's all the same arguments you hear about now about uh, e-cigarettes. This is going to get people who wouldn't smoke onto these, and then they're going to sh- shift onto uh, to smoking, and it's terrible, and we can nip this in the bud. Nobody uses this stuff at the moment. Let's just nip it in the bud. Plus, there was some loophole in the law, which meant that there was no ban on selling them to children anyway. It wasn't actually covered. So I mean, you can understand there was a campaign against that. But rather than just say... Uh, that we're going to bring in a law banning children from buying it. Edwina Curry uh, got on this bandwagon and really pushed this whole moral panic. So in the end, the UK banned it, Ireland banned it, and then the EEC, as was, got wind of it and said, hang on, we believe in a harmonised market here. We can't have some people banning it and some people legalising it, which is not true. It's just EU throwing its weight around. So uh, so we'll ban it everywhere. (laughs) It's usually EU approach to market harmonisation. Uh, so they banned it anywhere, everywhere. But even at the time, there were one or two tobacco control academics saying, hang on, this doesn't seem to have much of a health risk to it. Actually, if we had, if all the smokers switched to snooze, that would be a really good thing in terms of public health. And this is what they've done in Sweden. That's exactly, well, in Sweden, they've been using it for 200 years anyway. So there was a history there and people weren't going to stop using it. And uh, if you look at a graph of tobacco consumption in Sweden, they seen a huge decline in the number of smokers and the number of cigarettes sold. But in terms of the actual weight of tobacco sold, it's held pretty much steady mm-hmm. for, for decades. People are just consuming it in, in snooze. There was a fear that it caused oral cancer. I think Sweden's got the lowest oral cancer rate in, in Europe. Um, 
fear that it caused various things. Actually, the evidence finally came out in the 90s showed it, it doesn't cause any form of cancer. And I think this has to be uh, unprecedented. The EU in the end changed the warning label on snooze, which had previously said causes cancer, changed it to is addictive or something fairly wishy-washy. So mm -hmm. I think it's the only time a, a tobacco warning has ever been watered down. <laughs> Quite extraordinary. Um, do you think that if with a new prime minister and a, a, a shift in policy from the Conservatives, do you think the Conservatives could rediscover their tradition of, of being a party of liberty? I think they could, yeah. Um, I am I, relatively optimistic. I don't want to be too optimistic because I was relatively optimistic about Theresa May on this for some reason. Um, but I think given the kind of people who seem like um, they're going to be you know, leading ministers over the next couple of years, I'm fairly optimistic that the, the rate of decline at least will slow down. I don't think there's going to be a push for doing lots more stuff. Ideally, I'd like the entire obesity strategy thrown out the window. I think it's very important to nip this what food the, control stuff in the bud. The obesity strategy basically empowers officials to determine who produces what food and sells it to the consumer on what terms. Well, there's more to it than that. There's, there's the reformulation strategy, which Public Health England's running, and that is about voluntarily encouraging the industry to take out 20% of sugar, 20% of calories, and take out some fat and salt as well. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is going to end in tears, because I just don't think it's really feasible, but we shall see. But on top of that, we have a whole, a whole load of policies, which are essentially just old anti-tobacco policies, rebadged and applied quite inappropriately to the food supply. Mm -hmm. So a ban on so-called junk food advertising before 9pm, even though most politicians have no idea what junk food is, and indeed there is no legal definition and it includes things like butter and bacon and yeah, what most people just call food. But it's also right? a nonsense. I mean, my 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 daughter watches um, programs on Netflix with no advertising, yeah. on YouTube, um, where you know the the advertising is is not covered by by, by any of that, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's so condescending. This idea that there is a watershed and the state can decide. It's, out, it's outdated, but you know they're they're literally just copying what they did to smoking years yeah. ago, right? So they're not taking into account how people actually watch television. They're not even expecting it's going to work. This is about getting the ball rolling. Okay, so you've got the advertising ban, very much in the same tradition as anti-smoking policies. You've got these crazy crazy rules coming up where you won't be able to display so-called junk food at the checkout, at the aisle, at the uh, at the end of the aisle, at the shop entrance. I heard they the were going to limit your ability to offer sort of two-for-one pizzas. And discounts, yeah. So you've got uh, this clamp, uh, clamp down on two-for-ones and other multi-buy discounts. This is going to hit poor people and the people who are struggling to feed their families the most. It could do, potentially, if, if it weren't so easy to get around. That's the thing. I mean, shops, they're not going to... The government's not literally saying we're going to do price fixing here, right? So if you're no longer allowed to do two for one, what do you do? You do half price. You know, and if they ban <laughs> you from doing half price, you go, well, it's always 50p rather than a pound. You know, So they, yeah, there are ways around it. There are ways around a lot of this stuff. And that's why, of course, it's never going to work. But there's a kind of built-in deliberate obs obsolescence to a lot of public health mm -hmm. stuff. You know, it's almost not designed to work because if it doesn't work, you have to do more of it. If it works, you do more of it's it, not, right? But if, not, it, if it doesn't work, you do more of it. So you, not, you, you can't win from that point of view. So this is why it needs to be nipped in the bud, because 
so far, apart from the sugar tax, the government hasn't really legislated in this area. Once it starts legislating, it will have to keep on legislating mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it has already made, it's already signaled that it believes that it's a government's job to control what people eat, essentially, com- mm-hmm. c- control their waistline. And regardless of whether any of this stuff has any effect, and I think it's almost certainly it'll have no effect, they'll have to do more. Yeah. If it works a bit, then great, well, that worked. Let's do even more of it, right? Let's tax even more food and drink products. Mm-hmm. Let's have even more restrictions. Yeah, and mm-hmm. oh, Douglas Carswell quite rightly points out that kids don't watch TV. We'll have to ban it in magazines yeah. and newspapers and billboards and everything else. So it will carry on until we get to a point, quite conceivably, 20 years hence, where, you know, having already banned tobacco in 2030, we're now talking about banning Coca-Cola because why not? We want to have a Coca-Cola free world. We don't want any sugary drinks. We've been fighting a war against these things mm-hmm. for the last mm-hmm. 25 years. We put a tax on it. The tax is now five pounds and a few people are still buying it and we've got a black market. Let's get rid of it completely. And of course people will go, well, you're crazy for saying that. But you know, mm. I've been right about pretty much all this stuff for the last 10 mm. years. So maybe mm. people should start listening to gloom mongers like me <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than the uh, people who you know, dismiss these warnings so I, readily. I, I still think there'll be, I mean, you use the phrase backlash. I think that a backlash implies a temporary counter-reaction that is of itself um, ephemeral. I, I think we're actually heading for a sea change. I think a number of different underlying cultural changes are underway and what it boils down to is a, a loss of, of deference. The, the governed are no longer willing to trust the governing. You see this in the Brexit debate, the idea that you know economists and experts and treasury officials know what's best for our economy and why we should vote a certain way. People just don't believe it anymore. Um, I think in, in many, many areas of our lives, this idea that someone somewhere can gather more information and make a judgment on our behalf better than we can is 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 falling by the wayside and i i suspect that there will be a a market for we got a gap no uh, drill incompetence I suspect that there will be a market. <laughs> I suspect. I suspect that there will be a big marketplace politically for people pushing for deregulation, less nanny state, and repealing a lot of these things. Um, I, I imagine that you can win a lot of votes in places like Clacton by saying you're going to get rid of a lot of this nonsense. Yeah, I think there's a market for it. Whether it's a majority for it, I think, is, is the more interesting question. I mean, clearly Boris Johnson, when he announced some time ago that he would be you know, reviewing and possibly repealing sin taxes, he was doing that because he believed that there was support for that, at least among Tory members, right? This is during his leadership campaign. Uh, and probably amongst the wider public. And I think there probably was a fair bit of, um, uh, of support for that. And is a fair bit of support, and there may well be a fair old crossover with people who voted Brexit, I dare say. Mm-hmm. But there was a hell of a backlash from the from a lot of people in the press who suddenly, rather like Brexit actually, suddenly decided that the sugar tax was one of the pillars of British civilization. And it but, would be... <laughs> but why is it a bad thing? I mean, the more that the press, surely the lesson of politics on both sides of the Atlantic over the past five or six years is that 
the more that the commentary and the Guardian, the more yeah. that the commentary attacks something, the more it legitimizes and popularizes it in the eyes of the public. I mean, the, the anti-politics backlash is not just aimed at politicians; it's aimed at the pundits who presumed to know what's best for us. Yeah, I think that's quite right. And I, if you're kind of suggesting that there's some kind of populist element to this potentially, I think that's mm. probably true. I think if there is going to be any kind of change in this area, it will come from some, some somebody who you might broadly describe as being populist, whatever mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. um, and that could possibly be Mr. Johnson, mm -hmm. but who really knows mm -hmm. what he thinks. A, a final question, if I may, drugs. Um, I always get a little frustrated as a libertarian when I, I find myself being asked about drugs. I, I'm in two minds about it. To be honest, I don't really care about it. Um, I suppose on balance, I'm in favor of legalization, um, but de facto, um, there's been a process of decriminalization anyway. What are your thoughts on drugs and why, why, should, we, why should we liberalize the laws on drugs? Uh, I think we should certainly legalize cannabis. Actually, I think we probably will legalize cannabis. Uh, We've basically done it already. Well, that's the Peter Hitchens argument, but we haven't, you know, and, and the, we, we, there's a lot of damage done by cannabis because we haven't legalized it. And I think How does it... Well, because over the last 20 years, you've seen much, much stronger strains of cannabis, which okay. are fundamentally different to the kind of cannabis people were smoking in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and they're much more closely correlated with psychological illness. Um, so I don't think you can have your head in the sand anymore. And legalizers generally don't have their head in the sand anymore. There are still a few people who so say, oh, no, it's great. It cures psychosis or whatever. But no, it, it, it definitely is linked to psychosis. But this is because you have very high THC strains which also have very low levels of CBD, which is antipsychotic. We've got the worst of both worlds, and it's all because of the perverse incentives of prohibition. So just like in, in 1920s America, the incentive is to... Um, Create have the strongest a, brand the, possible. The strongest product, right? You don't have to sell beer, you sell moonshine. Mm -hmm. um, so the same with crack cocaine, same with heroin. You know, just get it in a smaller, smaller size as possible with as much of the actual drug in as possible. And as far as users are concerned the drug is THC and they're not bothered about CBD and they don't know how much CBD is in there. So it has done a lot of damage in the last 20 years, which I believe could be undone by a regulated market. That's interesting. So you think that actually if you legalized it and then actually regulated it, you would make it less harmful? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Uh, and the important thing is to have a minimum amount of CBD in it, not minimal, a minimum amount, as much as, as, much as possible. CBD being the... That's the antipsychotic, which is, is naturally in the plant and kind of naturally counteracts the, 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 the effect of THC because THC gets you stoned, but it can also make you kind of paranoid and or depressed mm. or whatever. I mean, I, I, I remember meeting a young man in Clacton who had very, very, very poor short-term memory mm. and he'd spent much of his teenage years off his, off his head. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think he would ever get properly better. I think yeah. it had affected him for life. A lot of people know somebody like that, but they wouldn't have done, I don't think, in the 1990s. In the 1990s, I will say, cannabis was genuinely a soft drug. I'm not sure mm. it really is a soft drug. Anymore. So you think the case actually for liberalization has become stronger now? Yeah, so. exactly. A lot of people think it's become weaker because people actually do now know people who have become recluse or become mm. depressive mm. or, whatever, mm. or mm. schizophrenic even. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's exactly the opposite way around. You know, the, 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 the damage primarily there, as with most other drugs, is the prohibition itself. Well, that's actually quite good. If you as a free market libertarian are actually saying we should 
decriminalize or legalize something so we can regulate it. so we can regulate and tax it. it but i see i and tax it i see i see scope for a, a, a sort of consensus here i mean i'm sure there are people on the more pro regulatory pro taxation side of the argument who who might actually be happy with that too yeah i mean there there's a genuine public health case there um, and british medical journal come out in favor of legalizing it lots of people have come is there out anyone in public health england who's Thinking along these lines. Well, they might be thinking along these lines. I don't think they've said anything about it as yet. But the the medical community is increasingly of the mind that we mm-hmm. should we should legalize, not just decriminalize. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to decriminalize. Some people on the left just want to decriminalize because mm-hmm. they don't like the idea of big businesses selling a product and making mm-hmm. money out of it. But decriminalize I mean, really doesn't solve any yeah, of the issues. We've de facto decriminalized anyway. More or less. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to go to prison. Or very unlikely you're going to go to prison. Um, for smoking cannabis unless the police have got it in for you for some other reason. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but it, decriminalization does not deal with the supply chain and all the violence mm. and problems within mm. it. It doesn't raise you any tax money and it doesn't mm. allow you to regulate the product so people know what they're buying. Okay. So I've recently been to Canada to see how the legal market works over there and uh, actually it's not working very well because the government have decided you must sell it way above the street price, which is insane. But they, Why is that? To discourage they, consumption. They don't want, yeah, exactly. They don't want people to. They don't want more people using it. So this is a, a common fallacy amongst some liberalizers on on the left. Is they want to have their cake and eat it. They want it to be legal, and they want it to be regulated and what have you. And they want to get rid of the organized crime element, which was the number one reason they did it in in Ontario. But they don't want more people to keep to use it mm. therefore they don't want it to be advertised and they don't want it to be cheaper and of course if you don't if you don't make it cheaper why is someone going to buy it i mean you'd have to be really scared of the so law. The, the, the legal formal market hasn't in effect been allowed to satisfy the demand and so people in canada are still going to the they're, going, they're going on the street because in, yeah. in the shops it's a minimum of ten dollars a gram in the street it's on average about six dollars a gram sounds a bit so, like cigarette market in this country where well, it's all under the counter <laughs> there, yeah yeah exactly yeah. it's the same principle stands yeah, you know yeah. um so at least 70 percent of the market over there is still illegal mm-hmm. uh consumption has gone up all the same and what's happened is people who were, didn't used to smoke it perhaps have never smoked it thought well now it's legal i'll try it so they go to the <laughs> sh- they go to the shop and buy it the people who smoke all the time have been smoking for years of whom there are a hell of a lot in ontario huge prevalence um they're thinking well i can't afford to be buying this stuff from a shop in plain packaging you know is only open between but, the and, hours of... And, and know, there'll be almost presumably no consequences of doing it on the black market now that it's... Not, no, not if you're buying yeah. it now. The police, yeah. uh, police haven't enforced the mm. drug laws over there for cannabis for many years. Okay. Christopher, thank you very much for coming in. It's been an interesting, meandering conversation, and I'm very grateful. <laughs> thank you.